Hey, it's Sean Fennessy, one of the hosts of the Prestige TV podcast. HBO's Barry is back for a fourth and final season. And that means I'll be back recapping the show with co-creator and star Bill Hader to dive deep on the themes, scenes, and major moments in the series. Bill will provide insight into how every episode was made and why it's ending. New Prestige TV Barry recaps will go live every Sunday night when the episode ends. So make sure you're subscribed to the Prestige TV podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Tuesday, May 2nd, so it's on. The Writers Guild of America officially called its first strike in 15 years at 12.01 a.m. this morning. And Hollywood, as it normally functions, is shutting down. The late night shows, SNL, those are first. Although not Gutfeld on Fox News, so your problematic uncle doesn't need to panic. But if you're driving around L.A. or New York right now, you might see some nerdy-looking dudes with placards picketing their studio and streamer employers. This thing could go on for a while because last night we got a look at where the two sides say they were in negotiations and they were far apart. There was a usual offer and counter offers on money, but as I kind of predicted on yesterday's show with Lucas, the big picture stuff, reconfiguring how residuals are paid for streaming, the data transparency issue, and the use of AI and script writing, those were non-starters for the studios, at least according to the writers. They've released an entire document purporting to show how intransient the studios are on those issues. And the studios said only that they made a generous offer, were willing to talk more, but the writers were being unreasonable. And the, quote, primary sticking point, they said, was these mandatory writer's room they keep talking about, essentially paying writers to do nothing. So here we are. There's been a ton of media coverage about this, but not a lot coming from people who are in the negotiation room and are willing to talk about it. So I got Adam Conover to come on the show. Adam's a writer and TV host. Maybe you've seen Adam Ruins Everything. And importantly, he's a board member of WGA West and on the negotiation committee. This isn't an endorsement of the writer's cause, of course. I push back on him. And we've also reached out to the studio side. We'd love to do an episode with someone representing that view on the show. They said they're considering it, so we'll see. No call sheet today. We ran long, but Adam is very good on the issues that are keeping these writers and studios apart. He's taking us inside the writer's strike, why the talks broke down, and what the writers really want so they can end this thing. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Adam Conover. He is a writer, showrunner, TV host, creator of Adam Ruins Everything and The G Word on Netflix. He's also a board member of WGA West, and he's on the negotiating committee for the WGA negotiation with the studios, which just resulted in a writer's strike. First time in 15 years. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I, I love listening to the show. It's a pleasure to be on it. 
Well, thank you for joining us. I wanted to have you on today because we've seen so much media coverage of the strike. I'm responsible for some of it, and there's a million other outlets out there covering this now. But we haven't heard much from the people in the room, the negotiating committee, and what the mood was during this strike. Uh, So give us some insight into how this all went down. I mean, so first of all, the the mood in the room, I can only speak to the mood in our caucus room, was upbeat for the most part because, you know, writers are really united. We know what we need. We know where our power is. We we know how much leverage we have. Um, And, you know, it's it's disappointing and depressing when the when the companies stonewall us as they have on on quite a few of our items. Uh, But, you know, we're very much happy warriors in there. Now, in the room where the actual negotiations take place, you know, we leave our caucus room, we go into the negotiation room. That is an extremely formal process. You know, we always go in knowing who's going to speak and what's going to be said. We're going to present a proposal. They're going to present a proposal. And so it's very much sort of like foreign diplomacy. You know, you go and you sit down, people say their specific things and they say, thank you very much. And then we leave and go back to discuss what the next move is. So the mood is always uh, not even chilly, just you know, almost robotic in terms of, you know, everyone is just taking notes or or uh, listening to what's being said. All right. So that is the writer's side version. I would just want to read you something that I got from a studio side person sure. and get your response to it. The AMPTP, which is the studio side, gave the WGA a 40-page document of offers and counters on their proposals. At 2 p.m., the WGA responded with a single page containing two lines accepting two minor proposals. They then told the AMPTP that they refused to respond or negotiate on anything else. So that's a game that they're <laughs> very happy to play. I could play I the know, same game. I know, I know. Listen, and I am not, I, I don't want to belie any biases here. No. I, if anything, I am sort of quasi on the creative people <laughs> side here. I am a creator myself, I, but I also cover this stuff and I yeah. want to be fair. And this is what they are putting out there. No, no. And, and I just, uh, that's completely fine. But I want to let you know, that's how the game is played, right? The, the, the same, what I could say as the writers is say, hey, we went in there and writers spoke passionately from their heart about the issues facing them. You know, we had uh, screenwriters talking about being forced to do endless rounds of free work by producers who were holding their final payment over their heads. We had comedy variety writers, that's the field I work in, that's like late night, go in and talk about how when we work on streaming, we don't have any of the minimums or basic protections that we do in television and have had for the last 50 years, even though we're doing the same job. Did they really suggest a day rate for late night writers that is their current best and final is a day rate that is pretty insulting i mean typically on a a small contract you're at least weekly Yes, and the standard for comedy variety is 13-week contracts. Everybody who works on Late Night currently works under a 13-week contract. They find out every three months if they're going to be hired again. Now, that's bad enough. Most salaried professional employees wouldn't accept a re-up every three three, three months. Um, but they're literally offering their best and final currently is a day rate. But we also had writers speak from their heart about, you know, in episodic television, about how they feel the companies are trying to eliminate the writer's room, about how they're being forced to do more with less, about how they're 
their producers' fees are being eliminated and how hard that makes it, not just for us to live, but to make the product that we care about that makes the company so much money. So we express this to them in our really personal, desperate terms. And on all of those proposals, they refused to even respond. They didn't even make a counter. And I can, I mean, you can look at the document that we put out of, of their best and finals. Yeah, you guys are actually pretty transparent about this stuff. Now, obviously, this is your version of events, and they have another version that they have both said publicly in their statement and that they are sort of quietly putting out through various media outlets. But it's pretty stark. You guys are so far apart on so many of these issues. Yeah, we are. But the, if if you look at the issues that we're far apart on, a pattern emerges because the things that we are starting to move towards each other are, are basic just money stuff. You know, it's like how much of a percent minimum bump is there going to be? How much of a percent on foreign residuals? I mean, what was the, what's the difference there? You guys, you guys asked for 6% on minimums and residuals. They offered 4, 3, 2. So- yeah. Exactly. And and you can see how, all right, you sort of come together and meet in the, right? That's, that's normal negotiations. But the points that what really, the points that really matter to writers are the ones that are going to protect writing as a career. Like let's, let's make no, you know, make no bones about it. The companies are trying to eliminate the writer's room and turn writing into a freelance per, a profession where there's one showrunner who's farming out scripts uh, to, to writers who get paid a script fee. Or where in late night where they bring you in, you know, one day a week to write a couple jokes on a Friday. Or where screenwriters are, you know, again, forced to, forced to work free for endless amounts of time. And so we have proposals in there that are designed to ensure that there is a writer's room. We just want to make sure that writer's rooms continue to exist or a proposal that is that would make sure that screenwriters are paid weekly rather than at the end in a lump sum. That costs no extra dollars for the studios. It just like makes screenwriters lives easier and makes them less, you know, under the thumb of a producer who's demanding free work. Um, and on those types of proposals, the, all that they did was reject them. And you can see in our document, rejected our proposal, refused to make a counter, rejected our proposal, refused to make a counter. Um, And then finally, on the AI proposal, where we proposed that AI not be used as either source material that writers are asked to adapt or as a literary material, meaning not used as the as the work product of a writer. Once again, they rejected that and refused to make a reasonable counter. They countered that we could meet once a year to have a discussion of advancing technology. Yeah, that's already become a meme on social media. It's It's ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, oh, thanks for the. What are they going to say at the meeting? You know, oh, hey, there have been some interesting advances in technology. Well, see you next year. Like right. that's, you know, what that that's not an offer. And a lot of people pointing out that in the last negotiation 15 years ago, the studio's initial position was we'll figure out the internet at some point down the Correct. line. And the writers really held fast on that and did at least get some of their uh, streaming residuals and things resolved for this internet era that we just experienced. What we won in 2007 was coverage of the internet period, meaning coverage of streaming. And if it hadn't been for that strike, we wouldn't have coverage of, you know, everything from House of Cards to The Mandalorian would be fully non-union because the Writers Guild went first and went on strike to win it for all the other unions in town. Well, they argue they would have done differently, but but I get your point. And the the residual regime, regime that was agreed upon in in those early days is what's at issue here. And you guys have said from the beginning that you want to rewrite those rules. So it seems when I'm reading your, this is the writer's side again, the writer's interpretation of the negotiations, the studios were willing to give on the financials, 
but not willing to give on any rewriting of the actual rules that would live beyond this negotiation. Correct. Is that correct? You, you, you absolutely nailed it. And the reason why that's important is what the companies have done over the last 10 years is rewrite all of the rules that are not in the MBA in order to take money away from writers and make our work more precarious. There's all these things in the industry that are basically just norms. They're not, in a, it's not, it's not in anyone's contract that there has to be a writer's room. There's not in anyone's contract contract that writers have to be brought to set to give feedback on what's happening on the monitor. It's not in anyone's contract that writers need to be paid as writers through post, even though writers are doing writing. I mean, I've, I work, I've worked in post. You write in post. You write lines in, of ADR. You, you make decisions about what scenes you don't need. That's writing. Well, and that's why everyone's freaking out now about these shows that are sort of left in limbo. You guys are on strike and some are like, oh, well, they'll just finish the shows if they have scripts. Well, that's not really how it works. There are, there's writing throughout the process. Correct. So a really good example of this is something that they gave us. It's down at the bottom of the second page of our little document here is script fees for staff writers. That's something that in the Writers Guild we've wanted for many years. When staff writers write scripts currently, they don't receive a script fee as every other writer does. Staff writers, the lowest level in our contract. Yep. That's yep. your entry level. Uh, and so they offered us to this. They offered us this. And your first blush uh, reaction might be, oh, wow, that's a great offer. That's something you guys have wanted for decades. That's a big give. Except that they don't have to pay that if there isn't a writer's room anymore because then there's no staff writers at all. Then everybody's working freelance. So when you look at it that way- Well, they would say that that's not the plan, but what you're saying is the door is open. If you're a writer in Hollywood, you know that's the plan because that's been happening to you <laughs> because they've been slowly shrinking the writer's room. The, the the mini room is a legal fiction that's a half step in on the road to not having a writer's room at all. Right. These mini rooms are what have cropped up. They're pre-production and they are designed to break out these shorter episode shows that are then handed off to a showrunner and or one or two top producers to execute. And that is a big bone of contention. And they didn't counter on mini rooms. Well, so their counter was, uh, you can see here, they give you a, a small premium for mini room or what they call development rooms. Uh, their last offer was 5% premium. So you get paid a little bit extra because, you know, the work's kind of like a pilot. Oh, it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's at a premium. But that's not the problem. First of all, mini rooms have taken far, far more away from writers because the point of mini rooms was to separate writing from production so they can say, well, you're not in production. You don't get your producer fee anymore. And for most overscale writers, that's where all of your overscale is. They pay you, uh, the, the Writers Guild line of your income is scale, and all of your overscale is in a producer fee. So they say, well, you're not going to set, so you don't get a producer fee. Now you get Writers Guild minimum. Um, and that that is not made up for by 5%, a 5% premium. Well, you do hear this often, though, that the writer's fees are often only one portion of salary now. There yeah. are significant producer fees that are not covered by the guild. The guild doesn't even know what its members are making on producer fees. That was the case before our agency campaign. We now get that data from the agencies. But yes, okay. that, that has been a problem. But this is a, a dual income or multiple income profession, and yet you guys are treating it like it's only one income. Well, the fact is that the the way that they have divided it is mm -hmm. fictional, right? They like uh, you know, it used to be that hey, you got your episodic rate, you know, and then some of its writers guild and some of its producers and you're kind of like, "Hey, uh, whatever is fine. As long as I make my health insurance minimum and I'm not getting screwed on my pension contributions totally, it'll be okay." But 
when they start using that division as an excuse to take away two thirds of your pay, even though you're doing largely the same work, like then it becomes an issue for the guild. And the guild yeah. now has to say, like the guild didn't used to have to say, uh, pay writers during post as writers because it was just part of the norm. But now that they've taken away that fee, we're having to put it in the contract. Um, and so, you know, the AMPTP will say that our asks are very, very big. But what we're saying is over the last 10 years, they have taken so much money away from us by inventing new contractual innovations. <laughs> Business affairs departments, oh, hey, we come up with something called the mini room. Oh, that sounds really good. We can do that too. And they all they all learn from each other. The, the only purpose of a mini room is as a contractual excuse to deny you part of your fee. Well, they say that some of these shows are shorter episodes and don't need a full 7, 10, 15 person writer's room to break a six episode Marvel show. Of course not. But like that's that's a red herring because that's not what we're asking for. We're not asking for more writers than you need. We're asking for the existence of a writer's room at all. Like what's currently happening is, you know, they're asking teams of three to make eight or 10 episodes or two or one, or they're asking a showrunner to do it by themselves. Like uh, Matt, they're literally offering showrunners incentive bonuses if they don't hire writing staffs because they're trying to end the writer's room. This is a This is like the new contractual innovation that has just started happening this year. And sure, they'll pay showrunners extra money if they do that. Now, hey, you want to be like Mike White or Craig Mazin? Like, oh, you'll get an extra, you know, 10 grand or whatever if you do that. But guess what? Five years from now, they're not going to be paying that bonus. They're just going to be saying, hey, write the whole show yourself. You can farm a couple scripts out to freelancers if you like. That is the clear trend. And what we are doing is we are putting measures in place to protect, we're replacing those old norms with rules. That's what you have to do when norms are eroded. And that is what the companies have refused to do. And if they give us an extra 5% or 6% or whatever it is, that's not going to matter if they can turn around and take it back from us the next year because they broke another rule that isn't codified into our MBA. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. So the studio statement yesterday uh, announcing that the negotiations had broken down said the following. 
The primary sticking points are, quote, mandatory staffing, end quote, and, quote, duration of employment, end quote. Guild proposals that would require a company to staff a show with a certain number of writers for a specific period of time, whether needed or not. And to me, that is an interesting argument to make because there are members of the guild that do prefer to write solo. I'm thinking Taylor Sheridan. I'm thinking David E. Kelly. And you mentioned Mike White. They are clearly trying to mm -hmm. turn this into an issue and make it seem like the writers are being asked to be paid for nothing. Is that how you see it? I assume that's how you see it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not how I see it. Look, we have a very small number of members who prefer to who prefer to write that way. We've been in touch with those members. Those member members have let us know that they are not interested in being used as a pawn by the Writers Guild. Oh, sorry, by the AMPTP right. to take the right to have a writers room away from the ninety nine percent of showrunners who rely and depend on a writers room. They know that they're weird, right? And they're okay with you know. Uh, a broader uh, a broader struggle in order to protect the livelihoods of all writers. Yeah, like Aaron Sorkin has a writer's room and then he just rewrites them all. I think Taylor Sheridan even had a writer's room for one of the Yellowstone he season. Did. And, and he just, you know, rewrites it if he wants to. Like, at least he's giving people jobs. They, they, the reason they are even casting that as the primary sticking point is because they believe it is divisive. But the fact is, the like to the Writers Guild, uh, weekly pay for screenwriters is just as important. Having basic minimums and comedy variety and a, not having a, a day rate is just as important. Having AI not uh, undermine us is just as important. It's bizarre they wouldn't counter on AI. It seems like an easy give, right? Yeah, you would, and that is that is the really interesting thing, Matt. Because when we went in, we thought, "Hey, this is something that we're a bit worried about. The technology is new. We're going to cover our bases. You know, like this is uh, th this is a reasonable proposal, and it probably shouldn't be that hard because it's not even clear if AI material is copyrightable. Um, it, the technology, frankly, is completely incapable of doing anything of help uh, to produce production ready scripts. It's ludicrous to think that it is for for a, a multitude of reasons that we could get into." If you want, but I don't think we need to. And so we thought that, you know, at the very least, they would they would say, yeah, we're not going to do this anyway. But they rejected it so hard and refused to even discuss it that that is a red alert that uh, for for writers like it is they have elevated the importance of that issue um and i don't want to say any of our issues are more important than than any of the others everything that you're looking at here is a sticking point for us viewership based streaming residuals is still something that we really well, care the about transparency i've been harping on the transparency issue and what i'm afraid is that that's something you guys are going to drop in favor of more money um because ultimately you're going to have to make concessions here it's much easier for ellen stutzman your lead negotiator to go around saying I got you bigger raises. We'll deal with the other stuff down the line. But the transparency in data is really causing problems. And arguably, that's why we're here right now. I just wish you guys would, would keep that in the forefront. What I will say is I think there's been a bit of a technocratic emphasis from the press on the data issue. Data is very important. However, Advertising is coming back into the business and the advertisers are going to demand public data because that's how advertising fucking works. Public or NDAs where we show you, but you can't reveal it publicly. 
I mean, if that worked, they would have done that in the 50s when they invented advertising supported media. Like the advertisers have the money and they get to call the shots. And Netflix might not believe that right now, but give them 10 years and they're going to have ad breaks. They're going to be telling, you know, the advertisers exactly when people dropped off so they can promote how many people watch the commercials. And that information is going to have to be public because advertising is a public market. That's me speculating. I'm not speaking for the Writers Guild right there. But um, the idea that the Writers Guild is the only game in town that can take a crowbar and we have to use all of our members leverage to get it open. It's something that we care about. But what I think, you know, are what is so important to members is the fact that they are trying to turn our profession, our careers into a gig job. Uh, look at what's happened to journalism, you know, your business, right? Uh, uh, where I have so many friends in media that, you know, I have, I have friends who just got laid off from vice, right? And they're doing the freelance thing. Um, that, that profession has ceased to exist as a viable career for so many people. You have people who say, oh man, if I could get one article in a place a month and make a thousand bucks, I'd be happy, you know? And that is what is gonna happen to television writing if we don't enforce rules of the road and and like, you know, put rules around the norms that have existed for decades and decades that have made these companies rich and that they are intentionally breaking. You know, the AMPTP is in many ways a cartel, right? It's all of the companies get, th think about how weird this is from an antitrust perspective. Well, no, it's, it, no, but it is an exception to antitrust law. You are allowed yes. to collectively bargain like this. And, you know, we would take issue with that. And, you know, we wish labor law were different and that, you know, an NLRB case had gone differently somewhere in the past. Um, but these companies are allowed to get together and collaborate to drive down worker pay, which is illegal in most other cases in, in capitalism. But in this case, it, it, they happen to have found a loophole that made them allowed well, but to you do guys it. are allowed to get together and drive up your pay. I mean, I, well, I, I, I get it. I see. It's a, it's I see a union. How. You know, it's yes. it, it, it's labor law. So it is in their best interest to erase whatever divisions there are between them. All right. So logistically speaking, uh, where you guys are now on strike, do you have a good strike sign? You think really hard about that? <laughs> I literally am headed out to my first picket in an hour and a half. Uh, I'm going to the Netflix building and I've been doing nothing but press all day. And when I get there, I'm going to grab a sign. I'm going to grab the funniest sign I can. Um, we've been very busy on the negotiating committee, so I haven't like been able to think of my my best bits yet. But I think somewhere around maybe week three, I think it's reasonable to assume we're going to go at least that long. I'll probably start thinking of some jokes to write. Rats. Include rats. <laughs> That's always a, a good sign in a strike. Like you walk around New York City and there's all the, those inflatable rats everywhere. So how do you see the pressure points really being applied here? Because it's a much different environment than 2008. Mm -hmm. the, yes, the late night shows are going away. That's a bummer. But in the fall, if there are not fall TV season shows on the networks, there are options now. Netflix still has the fire hose of content to pump at you. There's a lot of digital options that didn't exist in 2008. Even the late night shows are not what they once were. You can go on YouTube and watch 30 years of late night clips anytime you want. I heard your episode with the Corden producer. I, I, I know your position on that. Yes. So, <laughs> I share his optimism about it. Right. So, you know, this is not, you don't have the kind of pressure points that you once did. And how do you guys make up for that? 
I actually disagree with that we don't have the pressure points. Yes, things are different, but you know, back in 2007, they tried to replace us with reality TV. And the thing is, nobody even remembers the reality shows that they that they tried to fill their schedules with. Uh, all the shows people remember, uh, you know, Big Brother and The Apprentice and uh, American Idol, those all premiered in like 2004. They predated. Um, so for so they, they they'll try and you know, I think they'll fail. You know, can Netflix flood their airwaves with K dramas? Yeah, and I like K-dramas, but is that going to stop people from unsubscribing month to month? Or I'm not sure. Well, we won't know that till the end of the year. That's, that's why people I've talked to say this is not going to be resolved until November, December, when the real impact comes to streaming and people stop subscribing. It's true. And people can speculate on that all they want. Um, the stat that I saw, I saw this last year. I wish I could remember the publication, but it said that... Um, uh, when when subscribers sign up to a new service uh, for for a particular show, half of them have unsubscribed six months later, right? So you're like, oh, this new show Wednesday is great. I'll hit up a month of Netflix. People literally subscribe to Netflix for a month at a time now. They they hit sign up and then they immediately cancel the subscription so they get exactly 30 days. I do that myself. I only keep two of these things going on at, uh, on at once. Uh, so that's what they're facing. They are fighting churn so much. And the only thing that, that fights churn is these big, splashy, scripted shows and movies. It's not the reality shows. People don't, there, there has not been a reality hit like American Idol or Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in 20 years that has actually driven people to sign up. No, but they believe it prevents churn. That if you're into 35 different versions of 90 Day Fiance, you're less likely to cancel. It, st it stops the bleeding. Yeah. But like, is that an essential utility for people? Is that why people have to have Disney Plus? No, they have to have it because their kids need to see The Mandalorian. The other thing is, these companies' multi-year projections are based on their multi-year content franchises. Look at what Zaslav is doing, where he's like, We're, we got 10 years of Harry Potter. Right. We got 10 years of DC. <laughs> and that's what they're doing to pump up their earnings, in sure. addition to laying off people. That's the other thing they're doing to pump up their, their earnings and stock prices. So if we're, we're interrupting that pipeline, we're stopping the pipeline of the new shit that they're counting on for the next decade, in addition to stopping the churn right now. So it's a lot, you're right that it's a lot less about what happens and what goes off the air today. We're not, it's not like, you know, we're in the mid season of, you know, people are worried about Friday night lights, you know, not coming on in two weeks because the writer's room has stopped. Um, but we are turning off the faucet and the public, by the way, here's a big difference from a couple years ago, the public now hates these companies. The public no longer feels that Netflix is some great deal where they get every show ever made. The public feels that they're all overpriced, that they don't have the content they like anymore. Everyone's had their favorite show canceled. Everyone feels that there's too many of these services and the public is ready to hit that cancel button if they don't feel that they're getting value anymore. The labor movement has also seen a resurgence in the past few years, I believe. It sure has. The sort of income inequality. All right, last question, a very important one. You seem to have a little beard going, but are you a strike beard guy? <laughs> You're going to have a ZZ Top in a few months? Oh, man, I didn't even think about that. You're the first person to ask me this. Oh, there was a, that was a thing in 2008. People had strike beards. This bit of scruff is about as deep as I can go without it still, without it getting scruffy, you know, without getting patchy. Uh -huh. So uh, th this might be it for me. I tried to grow a pandemic beard and it was, it was too, it was uneven all over the place. And my girlfriend felt like we were on a des deserted island. So I had to go back to the two on my beard trimmer. When Letterman came back after the 2007 strike, he had this beard and nobody had seen that before. And it was a shock. And people were like, oh my God, strike beard. And a lot of those guys had it. So, And then that became his iconic look now. 
I know. Now he's know. the beard guy. I'm not. I actually don't love it, but whatever. <laughs> uh, all right. Thank you very much, Adam Conover. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. This is a great conversation. Really appreciate it. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Adam Conover. I want to thank producer Craig Horlbeck. I want to thank our editor, Jesse Lopez. We'll be back later this week with a fun, non-strike-related episode. Talk to them. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.